welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. Oh, it's going to be a really, really interesting one. It's one, uh, this is a show, um, the, the subject matter, I have never done anything like this before, and I'm really, really uh, excited to bring this to you because I think it's going to have a huge impact on you. Today we have with us Lee Ellis, who is founder and president of Leadership Freedom LLC and Freedom Star Media. He is an award-winning author, leadership coach and expert presenter in the area of leadership, team building, and human performance. His past clients include Fortune 500 senior executives and C-level leaders in telecommunications, healthcare, military, and other business sectors. His last book is entitled Engage with Honor, Building a Culture of Courageous Activity, Accountability. And his latest book is entitled Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance for v Vietnam POWs. That's right, Vietnam POWs. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Welcome, Lee, it's so great to have you. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you today, Randy. So, your, your book is about the positive outcome of uh, experiencing prisoner of war uh, conditions in Vietnam. And um, you feature in your book the love stories that came out of it. And now these are couples who are in their later years, 80s, and uh, still together and very much in love. But you were a prisoner of war in Vietnam, and it makes me shudder, and I'm sure it makes everybody else shudder, to even begin to imagine what that was like. So can you share with us how this, how you ended up as a prisoner of war and what your experience was like? Yes, I, I will. I'd be happy to. I just realized I didn't turn my light on. Let me turn my light on. Sure, sure, sure. Go. Okay, I'm back. Okay, and you're all lit up. Look at you. <laughs> okay. I'm lightened up. Okay. So here we go. Uh, I grew up on a farm in North Georgia, plowing mules, but I looked up every day and saw those airplanes going over, and I wanted to fly. I'd always wanted to fly. And so when I got in the University of Georgia, I got in the Air Force ROTC. It was required back then. Uh, and sure enough, uh, I passed all the tests, uh, the physical tests I was concerned about, the mental tests too. And I became uh, a second lieutenant in the Air Force when I graduated from college in 1965. Three days later, I was in Valdosta going to flight school. And 53 weeks later, I got my wings and assignment that said F-4 Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia. That meant I was going to, this was 1966, August 1966, the war in Southeast Asia was building up and the air war especially. And so as quick as I could get combat trained, I was going to be flying in combat. And sure enough, that happened. And by the summer of 67, I went to Da Nang Air Base. I flew in South Vietnam, uh, close air support for the Army and the Marines, interdiction missions in Laos on the Ho Chi Minh Trail over there. 
but most of my missions were over North Vietnam and I had 53 and on my 53rd one, my airplane was hit and it blew up and I had to eject. The airplane was tumbling, blown into pieces and I was coming down that parachute executing all the training I'd had, but I was surrounded by the militia and captured within two minutes. Took two weeks to get to Hanoi and there I was put in the Hanoi Hilton, which uh, was actually a jail built by the French downtown. It was Maison Centrale, was what the French called it. They built in the 1890s. It was a, a Bastille prison, and the uh, walls were 14 feet high, four or five feet thick. No one ever escaped there, and that's where I went. And most all POWs went through there initially because that was kind of the end processing place and then they had two or three other camps we might go to but I stayed there for eight months and then went to another camp and then came back and all in all I was there five and a half years my goodness um you know we we imagine or can't even imagine what it would be like to be in that uh not only locked up in that facility, not where your loved ones don't even know where you are and that, that kind of thing, but also the experience of the torture. Mm -hmm. How did yeah. you, what was that like and how did you endure it? Well, we were committed. Almost everybody there was committed to follow the code of conduct. There are six articles. Basically it says you'll be faithful to your country. You want collaborate with the enemy, you won't share any information with them, and you'll be faithful to your fellow POWs, and you're going to resist until you can get out of there. So that was six articles we'd memorized in our training. And so we were committed to that, and we're soldiers, and we're going to do our best to live up to that. And so when they wanted something from us, either propaganda, they wanted us to make anti-war propaganda for them, or they wanted us to share something about information, military information, of which we really didn't, most of us knew nothing that was really uh, valuable or even uh, top secret or secret or something like that, because we never knew what the next day's target was going to be, you know, so that we really didn't know those kind of things. But they were going to torture us, and they believed that we knew all of that and that we should help them. And eventually... Uh, they could make you do something and they wouldn't let you die. Because when you're being tortured, we found out that 99% of the people are eventually going to give in uh, and not die. And they didn't want us to die because they wanted to have us as a hostage in case they needed, you know, Americans there. They had a few of us there and they were glad to have us. So it was a battle. I can remember the first time I was tortured, they wanted me to fill out a three-page biography. Now, the biography had all sorts of family and military station, you know, where I'd been assigned and all that, financial information. I think they were building that for a for the Russians. I think they were building, a, you know, background information on American pilots for the Russians. But I wouldn't fill it out. My cellmates wouldn't fill it out. And so they started torturing us. And uh, after a few hours of us, now I had the, what we call the humane torture at that time. And you're on your knees and leg irons and handcuffs with your hands on a wall 
And after a few hours, you know, your knees and your whole body starts quivering and shaking and you fall down and they come in, the guards come in and grab you and put you back up and hit you a time or two. And then you go back and forth, back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I felt, I just can't do this. I can't go, I can't stay up anymore. And they're going to kick and hit my head and everything. So I think I've had, I got to go to another strategy here. And so I said, okay, I'll fill it out. Well, I did in that interrogation room. But the only thing I put down that was true was my father's first and last name. Everything else was a lie. And, uh, but after I'd done that, they left me in there in handcuffs and leg irons for a few more hours. And I cried like a baby. I cried because I was so ashamed. I was the lowest human being that ever worn a uniform because I could not beat them. I'd given in. Even though I didn't give them anything, the fact that I had given in and written stuff, yeah. uh, I felt worthless. But then I get back to my cell and there's one guy already back there. <laughs> he didn't last as long as I did. He did the same thing I did. And a few hours later, the other guy comes back and he was a tough guy, incredibly tough. And he had given in also. And then we learned a few months later that everybody had been through that and everybody, some lasted longer than others, but eventually everybody gave in and gave something. And what we learned was you had to bounce back. You had to believe in yourself. You had to bounce back, do your best. And we, our leaders gave us, uh, actually, eventually we got, we caught up with what they had said. They said, resist up to the point of permanent physical or mental damage, and then give no more, go ahead and give as little as possible, bounce back, get ready because they're coming after you again, stay united through communications, pray every day, go home proud, return with honor. Very simple, but that built a culture of courageous accountability. <clears throat> Wow. You know, um, your strategy, I think, was, uh, you know, very smart. And really, what did they expect you to do? Be honest? How would they know the difference? They didn't know a lot about our culture. So we could, you know, one guy was tortured telling the names of some people uh, who were uh, who had refused to fly. Nobody in his squadron, Navy guy had ever refused to fly. And finally he gave in and said it was, uh, uh, who was Superman's real name? <laughs> Clark Kent. Yeah, Clark Kent. And then the <laughs> other guy was a famous guy on TV. He gave him <laughs> two names. Well, of course, everybody in America knew that was, God was lying. <laughs> it was really brilliant way to handle it, but they had tortured him really hard, much. Uh, they had him in the pretzel, which was, tying your ankles and your hands behind your back. And then they would tie your tie a rope around your elbows and cinch them up until they touched, which means you were being torn up in here. And then they would grab your arms and lift them up over your head, which tore it more. So it was incredible uh, torture, but he finally gave in and it was uh, Ben Casey. I think it was Ben Casey and Clark Kent. <laughs> Dr. Casey. Oh my gosh, that's uh, that's really that's funny. But you know, when you're in these situations, um, it's amazing. You, you do what you have to do to survive. I know there was a situation I was in in my early uh, years, my early adulthood, 
where there was no way for me to get out of this really alive. And I used some crazy psychology and I managed to do it. And, um, you know, and, and you never, there's no way to think about this kind of thing beforehand. You just like your, your survival just steps in and just gives you these tools. Do and you have why, any- That's why it's so important to bounce back, you know, because we're all gonna take hits in life. Mm -hmm. It's true. Do you have any physical damage, uh, physical issues in your body from what you've experienced? No, I didn't. Uh, some of the guys, uh, a lot of the guys who went through the pretzel, their hands, uh, because it cut off the circulation, it took them a long time to get their feeling back into their hands. And some of them still have scars where those ropes were tied there and it tore off the skin. Uh, have some that. But most everybody uh, physically recovered. Our, we learned that the human body and the human mind are much more resilient than we really think they are. You know, we lived off of, uh, a bowl of soup in the morning and a bowl of soup in the afternoon with either a cup of rice and a little baguette of bread uh, for years. And then finally they started feeding us a little bit more and we lost weight and all, but we stayed alive and uh, not much protein, but we, we, that, and we had no medical care uh, as far as, you know, we got sick occasionally and have the flu, but we were very resilient and now we're outliving our peers amazing it's you said in your book somewhere that um that you you resorted to eating like bugs and worms and things like that for protein there was some in august there were so many little uh bugs in the soup and in the bread but especially in the bread they had been uh, like little bugs uh weevils one august the first august i was there august of 68 and we were getting this uh, loaf of French bread type thing. And I pulled out one cubic inch of bread. And I said, I'm going to take a survey so I can have evidence when I go home. And I counted. There were 44 weevils in one cubic inch of bread. And fortunately, they'd been baked. So there was probably some good protein in there. You know? <laughs> they were baked in. Wow. Yeah. Because they were in the flower, I guess. Wow. They, they hatched out in August and they got in the flower, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, how many other um, soldiers, Air Force men, were, uh, were captive at the time that you were? There were 300, about 300, and between 350 and 400 of us there were there more than five years. The bombing stopped. And most all of us were air crews, okay, up in Hanoi. There was a few Army guys that were captured in 1968 during the Tet Offensive in that era. And there were probably 30 or 40 of those up there. And actually, there were three uh, Catholic uh, uh, missionaries there that were brought up there. And uh, uh one was uh, the two, only two of them, well, five of them, but only two survived. But uh, they were in another camp, so they weren't part of our camp. So the, the Hanoi Hilton complex there was all air crew, and there were between around 350 that were there more than five years, up to eight years. Two or three of them were eight years, and then five, I was five and a half. But the bombing quit in uh, August of 1968. 
And so for three years, over three years, we didn't get any new POWs. And then the bombing started in 1972 to end the war. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when we got another 100 in because they did a big bombing campaign in December of 72 where they were a lot captured. But it ended the war and brought us home. <laughs> so uh, generally, though, figure 350 or so, we had one time after a raid on one of the camps, we had all moved out, but they raided it. The Special Forces did, but we had moved out. And they got scared and moved us all back into the Hanoi Hilton into large cells where Vietnamese prisoners had been. And that's when we went into the big cells of 40 to 60 guys in a cell. And we were there for a couple of years. And that uh, that's when we really started to heal. Locked up with uh, these guys, you know. And we got along really well. It was amazing how well we got along. I think we just knew that we were all together and we had to we had to be brothers and we had to accept each other. And that's where we really emotionally got healed. You know? That's amazing. Why? Um, so there had to have been other POWs. So th the Hanoi Hilton was just for the airmen. Um, where did they keep other POWs? Well, of that 350, most of the, in the early years, we went about four or five different camps. They had about 50 to 60 guys in each camp. Okay. But after that raid, they brought us all back there. But there was only um, another 50 or so prisoners in North Vietnam uh, okay. alive up there. Most of them, so more than uh, probably half to two-thirds of them died from either uh, injuries. They were in the jungles moving along slowly with the army coming back, or they got... Uh, some kind of typhoid fever or something and died in living in the jungles. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I had asked you this before we went on air. So I, you know, I was reading your book captured by love and, um, and I was looking because of the work that I do, I was looking for the remnants of, or the indications of post-traumatic stress disorder, because we know that, of course, you know, this is shell shock or whatever they used to call it is now PTSD. Um, and I noticed that there was no indication of that. And I had asked you that. So explain to the listeners why you all came home with no post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll let, let me give you one piece of background information most people don't know. The wives of the POWs and MIAs, missing in action, prisoners of war, uh, began to get organized. They'd been told to keep quiet by the government. And after two or three years, they decided that was not working because the, our communist captors were not treating us in accordance with the Geneva Conventions on Treatment of Captives, and uh, which is, should have been lenient, humane treatment and being able to write letters, and they would identify all the people who were alive POWs. Well, they didn't do any of that. And so the wives started putting pressure. And when the Nixon administration came in in 1969, Secretary Laird joined them and changed the policy to go public. And they got a lot of uh, sponsorship by Ross Perot and help there. They went to Paris and confronted the uh, Paris delegation of the Paris peace talks, the communists there. 
They sent millions of letters from people in the U.S. there. They put pressure on them. So when Ho Chi Minh died in the fall of 69, who was the president and founder of the communist North Vietnam, the new leaders stopped the torture. Cool. And for the most part, there was very little torture going on in the camps for those years after, let's say, 1970, 71, 72, and then we came home in 73. So we had time to get healthy because our treatment went day to day, living day to day. And then after that raid, we got into a big cell with a whole bunch of guys locked up. And uh, we just realized that uh, we had to get along. And I had to accept you and you accepted me and we're different, but we're the same on a lot of things and we're different on some things. And it was a good, good group of people because, you know, most of us were air crew. We'd been selected to be certain level of intelligence and ability and trained, well-trained. And so what happened was we realized that if we came home with bitterness anger about the war, about our captors, about the communists. Well, communism, we still hold a little anger toward, but um, not the people, because the people lived under it. They had to. And so every day we worked to turn loose of some of that anger and bitterness and shame about being there and all that. And we got healthier. We wanted to go home healthy. Because we knew that everybody's going to think that we were just crazy as bats if we've been locked up for five, <laughs> seven, right. eight years. Mm -hmm. and we're going to go home. We're going to fool you. We're going to go home healthy. Right. And so being authentic, being vulnerable, being locked up with people like that for days at a time, years at a time, helped us to grow healthy. And we came home uh, with very little PTSD, much lower than the combat veterans who fought in the South. Truly amazing. I was, um, I was a child, I think I was in uh, probably middle school at the time that the Vietnam War ended. Um, I had an older sister who was a protester. She was a hippie, you know, she went through all of that. I remember this, I remember the time very vividly. And I know that uh, my peers, the, the draft ended just before my peers got to be 18 years old. And it was like, whoa, you know, they really, they really dodged a bullet there. Um, but I know my father, who was a, uh, a World War II vet um, and very patriotic, he was very much against this war. You know, I remember him saying that he he would have taken his sons and gone to another country mm -hmm. and gotten them away from it because it was such a such a horrible war and we shouldn't have been in it. But so let's move on to the better part of this. So you wrote this book, um, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs. And what inspired you to write that? You know, uh, of course, we knew each other very well, having lived together. A lot of us, I didn't live with everybody, but I lived with, a, you know, probably 60 or 70 guys over the years up there and got to know them really well. And I knew all about their family and so on. And uh, we came home. Now, I was single. But we came home, and over the years after we came home, well, I got married. I was, met my wife within a year or so. And I kept thinking about, I kept hearing the stories. I met the wives and got to know them at reunions and sort of thing. And we really became close. And so I thought, you know, Hollywood couldn't write a script this crazy. 
some of these stories of these women who were waiting on their husband six, seven, eight years, and now they've been married, you know, over 50, over 60 years. And that's a great story. And then some of the single guys like me, how we met some people, it was just unreal, you know? Uh, and so I said, somebody's going to write the story. Well, I was writing on another book back a few years ago, and I said, I can't do it now. And then finally I said, well, Lee, you're the youngest guy, about the youngest. There's two guys that are a few months younger who was more than five years, POW, more than five years. And so you've written books, so you probably better get on with this because nobody's going to write it if you don't. So I hired a, a, a romance writer to help me to make it more romantic because I knew I couldn't. And we worked with 20 couples to get their stories. Now, about half of them were married and stayed married five, six, seven, eight years. And uh, about a fourth of them, five of those 20 were married and they came home and their wives said, I'm out of here. We're divorced. I don't want to see you again. Just move on. And uh, five of us were single in this book the 20 stories and we met someone most of them met someone within 90 days and were married within six or eight months i was very i dated all these wonderful beautiful girls but they just weren't the one until i met mary and i was probably the last bachelor to get married it was a little over a year <laughs> a year and two months before i met her and then uh six or eight months before we married and so I've only been married 48 years and 10 months. <laughs> okay. Is that all? <laughs> A lot of the guys have been married more than 49 years now because we've been home 50 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of, one of the stories you talk about, um, he met the woman. Um, she was a greeter when he got off the plane. Yeah. Um, and um, and it, it, it had sort of been already in the works that he was going to be fixed up with her. But um Tell us, tell us that story. Well, uh, I think that's one with Tom. He, uh, Tom McNish, he was single and all these years he had been dreaming about this wonderful wife he was going to have. And she was going to be, you know, five foot six or seven and brunette, uh, slim and, and Christian. He was strong Christian. Well, he comes home and uh, he gets off the airplane and gives a one minute speech there in Montgomery, Alabama at Maxwell Air Force Base. And there's this widow up there on the roof look at base operations looking down because her best friend's husband is on that same group. He's coming home and she's been wearing his bracelet and selling bracelets to people. And she's been part of the uh, movement of families, uh, you know, to to help the POW wives and all. And she sees this guy and he gives his little speech and she knows he's single because her friend had told her about him. And she he gives something about he gives a little speech and he says, and I'm looking forward to meeting the one, the girl, or something like that, a beautiful girl or something. And she shells out, Yippee! <laughs> they didn't know each other. And two weeks later, her friend, whose husband had come home, said, Hey, uh, you need to meet Tom. And she set him up for the date. And about five weeks later in the White House, when they invited us all, he was dating her and he invited her to go to the White House with him. Now she's Jewish and has two children, not, and she's a blonde. She's not real outgoing like the girl he was dreaming about, totally opposite. Mm -hmm. And he proposed to her in the East Room at the White House. Oh, 
they've been right. married. They've been married 49 years, and I've never seen a better marriage than Tom and Yona. They've just had a wonderful time. Um, you know, your book, um, let's see. You have four words by Tony Orlando and Gary Sinise. Um, and Tony Orlando is the Tony Orlando that wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. And he uh, he recorded that. Yeah, he didn't now he didn't write it, but he recorded, he recorded it. Okay. And it was number one in the nation the the month after we came home. Oh, it was. Yes. And in fact, it was uh, one of the top songs in all the world. I it remember. Was, it was huge. Mm -hmm. And so uh you know, Bob Hope was uh, Ross Perot and some people in Dallas decided to put on a welcome home for all veterans in the Dallas area. And they invited all the POWs to come there the first week and the first Saturday in June. And we went down there and uh, they invited Bob Hope to be the master of ceremonies. And they had a lot of entertainers there. And we were in the Cotton Bowl with 30, 40,000 people. And we were down on the field and the the um, de the stage is at one in the end zone there. And Tony Orlando comes out and sings Tie Yellow Ribbon and Dawn. And oh my gosh, there are two stories in this book that tie to that. Well, Tony Orlando has been invited to come to our reunions because of that. And he comes most every reunion and sings at our reunion. So we invited Tony Orlando to do the foreword. But Gary Sinise has also done so much for veterans, and he's a good friend of mine also. So I invited Gary to do that, and both of them did. So we have two of the most famous guys around. And Tony Orlando does a lot of work for veterans, lots of work for veterans, too. Yeah. Both, Yeah, they love the book, and they they've uh, they know a lot of us they've come to our some of our reunions gary has tony orlando comes to almost all of them in fact he sang this year at our 50th reunion at the nixon library wow um gary sinise was he interested in this before he uh shot that film what was it on um, born on the fourth of july or something like that was that the movie he was in uh, I think so. I know he was Lieutenant Dan in Forest. Yeah, Lieutenant Dan. Right. Okay. Okay. So was that the beginning of his interest in um, Vietnam? I don't know. Um, you know, he he had his brother-in-law was a Vietnam veteran. And he was, uh, and one of his brothers, I think, also. And that's what really got him interested in veterans was the some of the things his brother-in-law went through. I think it was his wife's brother. I, I'm, I read his great, great book, by the way, Gary Sinise's book, uh, but it was some in, people in his family that really brought him in to, to start with. And then the more he got into it, the more he started connecting with Vietnam veterans also. It was Forrest Gump, that's what it was. Yeah, he was Forrest Gump. Yeah. Right, from Forrest Gump, right. I got that mixed up. Um, so yeah, so that's, so he got interested in that. So that's, they wrote beautiful forewords for you in this book. And, uh, yeah, it's really, that's really interesting. Um, you know, we had some great endorsements from people who've written, uh, marriage and romance books also, uh, 
just famous people. It was just so great that they thought the book was powerful for couples to read because of the just the lessons in there, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you to give us a couple other examples of stories. Um, but I wanted to say that it seemed like your experience was different than many of the other Vietnam vets that came home. Yeah. Why was that? Was that because you were POWs or? There's two reasons, I think. I thought about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Two reasons, I think. There may be others. But one reason is that we were welcomed home because of the National POW MIA League of Families and all the work that they did, the families and wives and families. Mm -hmm. They had raised so much awareness about our mistreatment that it became national. I mean, the, we had one uh, very reserved lady who spoke to 25, 30,000 people at the Washington State football game in 1969 or 70. You know, uh, another one, very shy lady, became president of the League of Families for the state of Virginia and got 750,000 letters written and took to Paris. So they created so much of an interest in our treatment that when we came home, we were welcomed. We got a lot of, I mean, uh, Ford Motor Company gave us all a free car for a year. Wow. Can you believe that? I mean, that's uh, Holiday Inn gave us a week at any Holiday Inn we wanted to stay at. I mean, just all sorts of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a lot of yellow, those yellow ribbons tied. When I was coming home from the airport, with my parents, I was single. They were taking me, picked me up in Atlanta. They had already been to Montgomery and spent three days with me at the hospital over there. But they're, now I'm actually going home to my hometown of Commerce, Georgia. And there was a parade there, but they're carrying me home. And I see all these yellow ribbons on these trees driving home on Interstate 85. And I said, what's that about? And she said, well, that's a song. Oh. <laughs> yellow rose. And, you know, if you're if you welcome me home, you know, so uh, we got that great welcome home. But most Vietnam veterans were were mistreated, spit on, told not to wear their uniform because somebody might attack them. Oh. Because a lot of the hippies got overboard with the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. and they saw a person wearing a uniform as being uh part of that decision to keep the war going. We were there fighting, but we didn't make those decisions. And these poor soldiers were mistreated and not welcomed home for the most part. So that was, uh, and the fact that we had those three years locked up with other guys to get over our uh, emotional, mental health, shame, guilt, terror, all those kind of things that we felt we had time to get over that before we came home, whereas they didn't. They were fighting one day and coming home the next day. And they were seeing horrible things. Yes, yes. And see, here's the thing that's very, very important. You've got to be with a group that understands what your trauma is. When you're, It really helps if you can be with somebody who's been through what you've been through it really helps and they can talk they they understand you understand mm-hmm. you can talk about it and get healthy together mm-hmm. that's why group uh group activity with people who've been through what you've been through is so important 
to getting healthy and getting over your trauma. That's right. So you had the best possible outcome considering what you went through. You were... up being locked up like that after the torture stuff. If we'd have come home in 19 summer of 1969, there was a lot of torture going on. In fact, uh, there was an escape from one of the camps and they were torturing all the camps. And one guy was several guys were being tortured to sign a statement, a one page statement saying that they had received lenient and humane treatment wow. to sign that statement. And the guy says, that's a lie. I'm not signing it. And the guy says, no, it's truth. Truth is that which most benefits the party. The end justifies the means. Now that's a scary thing, but that's what was happening. And so uh, because they stopped the torture, though, it gave us time to get healthy and uh, forgive, forget, and get over it. What a spiritual blessing that was. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. huge. And by the way, but, uh, there were a lot of spiritual was spirituality was very important. Uh, a lot of a lot of guys tell the story of, hey, when I jumped out of my parachute, I was coming down my parachute. And I looked up and started praying. I said, Lord, I hadn't talked to you in a while, but I need to now. <laughs> because once you're out of control and you're totally, your enemy can kill you any day, all of a sudden you realize you need to pray. And guys would pray for hours. And people would ask me, I grew up going to church every Sunday and memorized Bible verses. And we didn't have a Bible. We didn't have any books. And, and my roommate would say, do you know any more Bible verses? And I finally ran out and I said, no, <laughs> I can't. But some of, the, some of the guys were in solitary confinement. You see the, the cells were like 18 inches wide and how big, yeah. they, they were tiny. Yes, they were uh, a little bit about just wide enough you could stand up. So probably a foot and a half wide, two, three feet, maybe three feet wide. Wow. But, yeah. And, uh, and, and not only that, but they would put them in leg irons sometimes all day long, mm. let them out in the morning and the afternoon. And you, you said know, that they would uh, like, they would do math problems in their head and oh, they yeah. would just keep, oh, yeah. keep doing things to keep their mind going. Guys, it's amazing what the mind can do when you're focused like that. You know, we memorize poems, uh, we memorize Bible verses, we memorize, uh, all, oh, I learned to speak Spanish and French and 2,000 word vocabulary in German. Hmm. Wow. Because we did, had time. Right. Did, um, did all of your families know that you had been captured or were there some of you who the families didn't know? It depended on whether or not they let your name out, right? If you captured some, they did. Some of them were there seven and a half to eight years. Their families knew right away. Some they didn't know for three years. Wow. In my case, it was two years. Now, they knew I was alive on the ground because I made a radio call on my emergency radio, handheld little thing here. And I, I did make a call and say, hey, I'm on the ground. I'm okay. <clears throat> I'm headed south to the river, start strafing at 300 meters north. And after the war, I saw these my wingman. And he said, well, we heard your call, but we decided we couldn't strafe because they were too close to you. I said, wise decision. <laughs> they captured me in about 90 seconds. Wow. So you have, so you had announced that you were there and, yeah. and, and they were able to report that to your family. Wow. But and for so, families that didn't know that's got, I mean, that in itself is torture. Hard. 
all so hard. Yeah. Right. Really. So tell us about another story, another interesting love story from your book. Well, we had one guy, a Navy pilot. He was there five years, a little over five years, and uh, married and no children. But when he called his wife, we called home from the Philippines. We all went to the Clark Air Base Philippines, which had the largest hospital in the Far East, American base. And we went there and uh, we called home, talked to our families. Well, he called home. His wife said, I'm out of here. Goodbye. And he said, I was really sad. But I, at the same time, I was free after five years in a POW camp and I was free. So I had a lot to be happy about. And so I just kind of calmed myself down. God will provide for me. And uh, he gets back. He uh, He's at the Dallas Cotton Bowl event. Tony Orlando is singing. Mm -hmm. Tony Orlando and Dong, they're singing. And he had been told, you know, take a date. And so he invited somebody he knew. And there was this widow whose husband was a heli Marine helicopter pilot who didn't come home. She was an MIA wife and she did a lot. She was a uh, chairman of the National League for a while. Hmm. She did a lot on, for our cause. And she had a little boy. She was pregnant when her husband went over to, Viet uh, to Vietnam or Laos, Vietnam. And uh, she had a child, a little boy, while... He was gone and he didn't come home. So she didn't want to go to that. And she was invited to come to the Cotton Bowl to this event and everything. And they had a party the night before. And this was Saturday afternoon, late Saturday afternoon, Saturday night. And her mother said, you need to go. You go with Joe over here. Take him and you go. And she did. And she's sitting there. Tony Orlando is singing, Don singing yellow ribbon, tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And he looks over, the Navy pilot looks over and she's sitting next to him. He looks and he's got a date and she's got that. He looks over and she's got tears coming out of her eyes. He doesn't know her. And he leans over and puts his hand on her arm and gives her a kiss on the cheek. Six <laughs> months later, they were married. Oh, Isn't that something? That's beautiful. They both, he was suffering the loss of his wife. She was suffering her husband not coming home. But they were able to have empathy together. And that's, they really were to dating and just being empathetic to each other. And all of a sudden they realized they were happy together. And now they've been married 49 years and they're a wonderful couple. He's 87, she's about 83 or four. Amazing. That is amazing. It was meant to be. It's just meant to be. Yeah. And um, they couldn't have children and couldn't. And so they adopted a couple of children and they, she had her son and they're all close family. They, they, their kids live across the U S but they live in Hawaii, but they all come together and enjoy being together. Great story. Yeah. And then, um, uh, there was Mo, Mo Baker. Well, I should tell about somebody who was waiting, Smitty Harris. Now Smitty was a POW almost eight years about five weeks short of eight years. <clears throat> um, and he was the one that brought in the tap code so we could tap and communicate, tap on those walls and communicate. And his wife, Louise, they were stationed in Okinawa. And um, their best friend, they had lived next door to each other several times in the Air Force, and their best friend's wife had some health problems. 
but uh, he got shot down. I mean, let me back up. Smith, let me back up. So uh, I've got into another one. Okay. Smith living in Okinawa. His wife was eight months pregnant. They had two little girls. And he got, he went TD temporary duty to over to Thailand. And he was shot down in 1965, March of 1965, captured. She's raising two little girls. He's eight months pregnant. The military says, well, you need to go on back home. She said, I'm not leaving till I have this baby. So she's, stood up and she stayed there and had the baby. Then she moved back and they told her, said, well, you're not going to get your paycheck because your husband is missing an action and you'll have to live on what, $300 a month or something. She said, nope. Called the secretary of the air force. She did. She told him, I got to have my pay, my husband's paycheck every month. And he said, well, I don't know if we can do that. And she said, you better. <laughs> he called her back for the end of the day and said, you're right. You're going to get your paycheck. <laughs> so she raised those three kids. He was there eight years. He's the one that when he got out and called home that day, he didn't know what to say to her. He had been gone eight years. She had, now they've been writing some letters every now and then. He got a six line letter. She got a six line letter four or five times a year. So he knew what had happened. She had a little boy and he called her and he didn't know what to say to her. And he just off the top of his head, he said, Hello, Jane. This is Tarzan. <laughs> and, and she says, I knew right then everything was going to be okay. Oh. We were going to be fine. And now they've been married 64 years. He's 94. And uh, what a wonderful couple. Wonderful couple. You know. Wow. They, um, you know, the, the, Things that came out most strongly were they shared these couples shared values, mm -hmm. had similar values. They uh, they had commitment. They were very very committed to uh, their mission in life, their purpose in life, and then to each other. And this commitment to each other helped them get through. The other thing that was very important, and I think we learned this in the POW camp, but they had some of it before. But one of the stories uh, is a, entitled Independent and Interdependent. And that was so important. You know, you've got to be independent. You cannot control the other person. They're not going to be like you. They're an individual, unique person. Okay. And you are a unique person. You got to be independent. But you, in a marriage, you need to be interdependent mm -hmm. and serve each other and work with each other and respect each other and care for each other and trust each other. And in every story that comes out. But in this one story, this couple, he, he, his wife divorced him. She was a widow, pilot widow, and uh, they married. And that's their stories about how each of them is independent but interdependent and they respected each other and they've been married 49 years with a great marriage and uh, she had two children he had two children they raised all four of them together and just have a wonderful family hmm. you know yeah so so were there were there particularly different challenges with couples um these couples than there would have been 
with couples that did not were not uh, brought together through this experience? Were there unique challenges? I um, well, you know, five of us were single and five of us were divorced in the 20 stories. So yes, each one has some uniqueness, but <clears throat> I think the idea of being uh, shared values and that commitment, once you make that commitment, you're not looking for any way out. You're looking to how to make it get through and to respect that person and treat them as they're really somebody. And when you do that, uh, you know, they, they're going to be, they're going to, it's healing for them. And it's healing. If they're doing that to you, it's healing for you. Mm -hmm. Because when somebody cares about you and shows you that you're worthy and important, that's healing. It helps you get over the trauma you experience. You know, nobody's perfect. We all have baggage from the past. Mm hmm now, my theory is, I don't, maybe it's somebody else's, but I came up with this about 20, 30 years ago, is that you marry to your own level of dysfunction. <laughs> so a person who's 90% healthy typically marries somebody who's 90% healthy. If you're 90% healthy and you marry somebody who's 60%, they got a lot of baggage, it's going to be very difficult to be have a good marriage. My wife's a licensed counselor, and most of the people that she marriage, she doesn't do much marriage anymore, but she did a lot over the years, marriage counseling, is that they're both, un, they both are struggling because they grew up and have unhealthy baggage from their childhood. Mm -hmm. And that's still interrupting their marriage. They're still carrying that baggage into their marriage, and it makes it really unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, uh, and this is something, this is a, an issue that I work with a lot with people, and um, it, it's so true. I mean, we have to bring our whole selves into these relationships in order for them to work. But often people come together for the wrong reasons. They come together because they're, they're needy or they're, they're lacking something and they want it from the other person, and uh, those, those marriages are going to struggle. I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, so what is life like for you now? Uh, it's very busy, <laughs> but I've always been busy. So it's just kind of part of me, but I feel very blessed. You know, I'll be 80 a week from Monday, October the 9th. Wow. And, uh, I still can do 25 or 30 push-ups in the morning when I get up. And I can go outside and work and go upstairs and walk up hills. And, uh, but I also enjoy writing. I do a blog. I just, uh, last week I recorded my, I do a five to seven minute blog every month, video blog, and then write a 700 to 800. This month is a thousand words because I talked about humility this month and how important it is to be humble. But you can't be humble unless you really believe in yourself. <laughs> See, you got to believe in yourself. And and when you help other people believe in themselves, you're actually helping them become more humble too, because then they don't worry about lowering themselves and looking up to you and saying, well, tell me about it. Wow, good, so, good point. Anyway, I, I do that every month, and uh, that keeps me a little bit busy, but I enjoy that. 
uh, I feel blessed to be able to write those kind of things because I know they help people. I've written some books. I was talking to a guy from the Air Force today, and I got a text yesterday from the from a guy who said I've been in the commander of the Air Education Training Co Command in his uh, entry in his waiting room, and this book was on the table. <laughs> it, it was on the chief staff's reading list in 2012. Oh, wow. What and does I, that tell I, us about what that book is about? Meeting with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Okay. It's a leadership book with uh, 14 chapters. <clears throat> Six of them are leading yourself and eight are leading others. But they bring in a story from the POW camp and what our leaders did and what we learned from it. But then I, as a leadership coach, I explain how that lesson applies in today's workplace. And then there's coaching at the end of every chapter. Well, this book is still going strong. When I spoke at the Air Force Association conference two weeks ago in D.C., a bunch of young people came up and said, would you sign my book? And I said, absolutely. I'm so glad you still have it. So anyway, you know, speaking about and sharing lessons of life and leadership uh it's just a blessing i think god put me through that and uh, allowed me to go through it and come out uh, a stronger person that can help others and i'm still able to do that speaking and uh doing i the air i was on the phone this morning or on a zoom this morning i'm doing a three-hour leadership workshop with some military group of leaders in washington dc uh, later this month. <laughs> How do you feel about the way our military is being run right now? <clears throat> I think it's really difficult right now in our culture today for a lot of reasons. Uh, there are some things that are being thrown in that are probably overstated that they're having to deal with, but also the young people uh, are being recruited right now because uh, there's such a shortage of workers a lot of companies are giving them uh, an added bonus to come work for us. And uh, there's a high recruitment because the, uh, they need people so badly. So that's uh, competing. And then the other thing is, I think a lot of young people just have not experienced a lot of responsibility. They don't see the value maybe in the military. And so I told uh, some folks recently about, I said, you know, help them understand how this is going to take them from what they didn't get growing up maybe to in four or five years, they're going to be a much more responsible accountability person that's going to help them the rest of their life and their career. Plus they're going to be with a fun team. You know, if you're a young person today, you're on this all the time and you're not around people, your peers enough. Mm -hmm. is going to put you with your peers. You're going to be part of a team. It's going to be healthier. I have a client, a female client who's a flight commander um, for the Air Force, and she uh, she's actually a nurse. So she's gone that route, you know, and she works in the in the hospital yeah. uh, as a nurse. Um, actually, she's moved up. So she's now a commander. But um, yeah, but I hear a lot about things with from her. And <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so. Wow, I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. This is so fascinating, and and you're su such an inspiration, Lee. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm, you know, I'm someone who has taken problems, a lot of problems and heartache, and and turned it into 
a way to help other people. And I believe that that's really what the lesson is here, you know, that we go through these things because it um, endows us with the, that uh, capability to help other people and you're doing the right thing. But this book is beautiful um, on so many different levels. It's, uh, the story is truly amazing, but the stories within are just so touching. So um, for anybody that is interested in this topic and how could you not be? <laughs> um, Captured by Love by Lee Ellis. Lee, it's been wonderful. Do you have anything else you wanna share before we finish? Just a couple of things. One is, um... You guys don't normally buy romance books, okay? But I promise you, the guys who have read it, they told me I have tears on one page and I'm laughing my head off the next page. <laughs> because it goes from being serious and a little painful of what they went through to wives and husbands. But then it's just funny. There are a lot of funny stories in there because humor was a big part of the POW survival. And it's a big part of a good marriage. You got to have humor in a good marriage. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about, I wanted to say was, and you just kind of mentioned this, is that uh, we had a reunion about eight years ago. There was a table we, when our reunions, we have a uh, a bar uh, at one end of each end of the table and some food in the middle. And we just sit around and talk and our wives get together and talk. But we're sitting there and about seven of us there, all POWs, five, six, seven, eight years. And, and one four, the only four-star general that met our, of our group that made four stars was sitting there. And I'd roomed for him for a couple of years. And one guy said, you know, guys, I would never volunteer to be a POW but I wouldn't change a thing. Oh, wow. And everybody agreed. We were better men because of our suffering. We were sad that our families had to suffer, but we couldn't change that. But we knew that we were better men because of our suffering. And that, and the way, the, what the wives did to change our treatment was a huge part of that. And I wanted, the last thing I want to say is there's so many between every chapter in that book, there's a one-page historical highlight. And half of them are from the POW camp, war stories from the POW camp, and half of them are what the wives and families were doing back home and their courage, and they're the real heroes. Mm. So I think you'll enjoy the history there of learning what was happening from 1965 to 1973. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of history in the book. So it's, um, you've done such a beautiful job of writing this. Oh, Greg Goddick is the love expert that helped you write oh, the book. Okay, yeah. It's his, Lee Ellis, former POW, Greg Goddick, love expert. Okay, <laughs> well, that's great. And that's how, yeah, that's how you were able to come together with this beautiful book. Um, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to you today. It's, it's just been so rewarding. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Randy. Thank you for what you do to help others too. God bless you. Thank you. Take care.